glory, still we will sing of this old story that rescued us. Praise to our Savior, the King of life. We stand in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that we can sing of your gospel, and we thank you that we can learn about your gospel, and we can apply your gospel. Lord, we pray that you would be with us now as we explore your gospel and the implications of it for our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if the kiddos can be dismissed to children's ministry, you guys can head off to be with the Garrities this morning, and... For this morning, we're going to be exploring 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. We're going to be exploring, expositing 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. So if you want to uh, scroll there now, because uh, it looks like a bunch of us have our phones out already, which is great. Um, so let's, let's scroll to there now. We're going to open up your Bible, so 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. Our message title for today is A Gospel-Centered Culture a gospel-centered culture. So the songs that we sang today, very, very relevant, very applicable, a gospel-centered culture. What, what defines you? What defines you? And by extension, what defines us as a church? What defines us as a church? So if someone were to ask me, what makes Providence community unique? What makes us tick, or makes our church tick, one of the descriptors I would use would be that we are gospel-centered. We know the gospel, we love the gospel, and we want to live according to the implications of the gospel. And as right, and as good as that is, we are always in danger. We are always in danger of losing our passion for the gospel, of it becoming familiar, and just a nice word or phrase that we know is right, but doesn't necessarily hold the gravitas in our minds that it once did. In addition, this world, we're just bombarded by information. We're constantly being told what to think, how to feel, how to act. And just about all what we're told is antithetical to the gospel. So spray commercials, they tell us to obey your thirst. Burger King says you rule. And the seemingly harmless reels on Instagram aim at moms that tell them you're worthy one second and then tempt them to feel like they need the latest storage container solution to be fulfilled. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, order and organization are good things. I love order and organization. But we are to be rejoicing in the Lord and pursuing excellence for his glory. This world is just not leading us to think in gospel directions. Well, today, we're going to take a fresh look at the gospel and examine a man who's radically and truly gospel-centered, the Apostle Paul. We're going to see his knowledge of and his appreciation for this message that just never grew old for him. And we're going to see the good fruit that this heart-enthralling, mind-pervading passion for the gospel Produced. For today's message, as I said earlier, we're going to examine 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. And again, we're going to see the gospel. We're going to examine a man transformed by the gospel. And in him, we're going to observe seven key traits 
of a gospel-centered person, seven key traits of a gospel-centered person, and by extension, the descriptors of a gospel-centered culture, a gospel-centered culture, a culture driven by the truths of the gospel, and so a culture that we desire for here at Providence. Before we get into it, though, let's first read the passage. Let's first read the passage. So 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because you are the king of ages. We praise you because you are the king of heaven and the maker of heaven and earth. And we praise you because you are our savior. Lord, we need you now. We desire you to do eternal things through this message. We desire you to envision us, strengthen us, encourage us, sanctify us through your word. And we thank you that you desire to do all these things so much more so that we desire them. You desire to bless this church. So Lord, please now, send your spirit. Please now speak. Please now pour your love into our hearts and instruct us by your word. Help us to be humble. Help us to be teachable. Help us to listen and apply. For this is your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Gratitude. In this passage, Paul starts out in a place that is common to anyone familiar with Paul's writings. We find Paul giving thanks. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a... And he goes on to remember the traits he exhibited before Jesus appeared and saved him. While the trait of gratitude is common... In Paul's writings, we should never take it for granted or gloss over it. Paul was a grateful man, a profoundly grateful man, because he remembered he lived in some profound truths. He remembered who he was before his conversion, he knew who he was in the present, and he remembered the transformation. Before his conversion, Paul, as we read, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But now, he has received mercy. Now, the grace of our Lord has overflowed for him. Now, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. 
All because Jesus was willing to leave heaven, live a righteous life, die on the cross, and rise from the grave. For Paul, and yes, for us. Think back. What were you before your conversion? What were you before your conversion? For me, I was worldly, selfishly driven, ridiculed Christians, alienated from the grace of God. I idolized getting into college, building my resume, and even directly mocked believers. What were you? But let us just not just remember who we were, and so let's also consider who and what we are now. Now, we are justified before the Lord. Now, we are servants of the Lord. Now, we are children of God. God is our Father. All because of Jesus. Doesn't that make you thankful? Doesn't that just well up gratitude in your heart? And aren't we just doing so much better than we deserve? Gratitude, thankfulness, will be a mark of a Christian who is gospel-centered, who is thinking deeply and appreciating the gospel. And by extension, a church that is gospel-centered. And don't we desire for that deeply here at Providence? Don't we desire to be a grateful church because we are gospel-centered? All right, humility. And not only did Paul remember who he was and who he had become in Christ, but he remained humble. He kept a proper understanding of his own personal depravity even after salvation. This was a guy who wrote half the New Testament. He wrote the letter of Romans, the grandest exposition of the gospel ever produced. And he started and shepherded numerous churches. Yet he stayed humble. How is this possible? Because Paul was deeply and rightly familiar with the truths of the gospel, including his utter depravity. He knew that he was a sinner, and he judged himself to be the foremost of sinners because he knew his own sin greater, his own sin greater, more deeply, more accurately than he knew anyone else's sin. Consider Romans 7, 18 to 20. In it, Paul writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I, the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul had a real healthy awareness of his own sinful condition. Let me ask, whose sin are you aware of the most in your life currently? Is it a friend's sin, or maybe a child's sin, or even a spouse's sin? Well, if we are thinking rightly, if we are thinking in line with the gospel, all the sin of others should pale in comparison to the knowledge of our own sin. Truly, we should not think, boy, I wish Shelton's over here right now to listen to this message. Well, I've, I've been there. But we should listen humbly and acknowledge that God is addressing us through his word. And that we ourselves, that I myself, need to hear this message more than anyone else. Truly, we must be a humble people. Paul was a humble man because Paul was a gospel man. He was so assured, he was so assured 
of God's love for him in Christ, of his being counted righteous in Christ, of his adoption by the Father, that he could look at himself honestly and admit his sin freely because he knew that God loved him. Imagine a church that effused, that embodied that type of humility, a humility that is poor in spirit, broken over our sin, and yet that is confident in God's love for us in Christ. That is what a gospel-centered, gospel-appreciating, gospel-entranced church will be like. Generosity. Generosity. The generosity of God is all over this passage. God gave Paul strength, verse 12. God gave Paul mercy, verse 13. God's grace overflowed like a river unbounding its banks. It overflowed for Paul. Verse 14, Christ Jesus literally came into the world and gave himself for Paul's salvation. God is by nature a generous God. He gives to us life and breath. He gives us a world teeming with beauty and his creativity, and he gives to us his son. Ultimately, to make the way so we can commune with him, with God as our father. How much more generous could we ask God to be? And if God has been this generous with us, and we know that he will continue to be this generous with us, for if God has given us his son, how will he not along with him also graciously give us all things, Romans 8.32? How can we not have faith to be generous with our time and talents and treasures, to give of ourselves for the good of others and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? We must always remember how generous God has been with us and will continue to be with us. We must think deeply about that and cultivate right affections because of that. And that will help us. For truly a church that meditates on, holds fast to, and is enthralled by the gospel will be a generous church. All right, servanthood. Servanthood. Christ Jesus appointed Paul to his service. Could there be any higher privilege. Where do we find our identity? Where do we find our worth? Is it in accomplishments? Is it in our physical fitness? Is it in people's affirmation and approval of us? Or is it in the fact that God has made us all, all who have repented and believed in Christ, he made us all to be his servants? And what a gospel-driven identity that is, for that is what God has saved us into. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and 6. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What a privilege. Now that we are free from sin and condemnation, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are now free to serve our brothers and sisters as well as our great God. By sharing the gospel, by exemplifying gospel characteristics and gospel doctrine, our behavior, by living for the glory and under the mastering authority of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Could there be a kinder, wiser, more patient, more gracious master than Jesus? Certainly, a church that is mastered by the gospel calls Jesus our master and finds great joy in being his servants.
Godliness. Godliness. As we've already seen, Paul remembers his past behavior in this passage. He remembers when his life was not driven by gospel doctrine. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. opponent. But now he's been set free. Free to repent of those sins and said to be a proponent of the gospel, a supporter and builder of the church, a worshiper of the Lord. He is free to grow in godly character. He is free to prioritize his life with the Lord's priorities. He is free to make choices that please the Lord. Paul, in the sense, no different than any of us. We were once fill in the blank. We once walked contrary to the Lord and his gospel. We once suppressed the truth by our words and attitudes and behaviors. Now, though, we've been set free. We've been set free, free to display all the traits and character implications and behavioral implications of the gospel. Listen to Paul again, this time in Galatians 5.13. For, for, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're free. Free to be godly. Imagine a church so immersed and so absorbed and so mindful by the gospel that we all embrace our call and privilege to live godly lives. Isn't that what we desire for here at Providence? All right, encouragement. Encouragement. In addition, isn't Paul an amazing example of encouragement in this text? Think about it. This was a guy who faced immense hardship and trial. This is a guy who'd been beaten, shipwrecked, ridiculed by the gospel and his ministry of the gospel. This is a guy who's been insulted and doubted and questioned by those he poured himself out for. Yet, this is also a guy who's remained encouraged, encouraged, strong by the truth of the gospel through it all. As we've seen, he's remembered consistently, deeply, thoroughly, who he was before his conversion and who he is after his conversion. He remembered the grace that has overflowed for him in Christ Jesus. He has recalled God's amazing mercy to him despite his ignorant unbelief. And through his remembering, Paul has stayed encouraged. His heart has remained steadfast, hopeful, strong in the grace of God. And not only that, but Paul passed along this encouragement. First and foremost, sharing the truths of the gospel with the church that he served. He literally, literally notes in verse 16 how God had perfect patience toward him, serving as an example and encouragement to anyone who would turn to and believe in Christ. Paul's experience of the grace of God gave him faith. It gave him faith that others, even God's greatest enemies, could themselves be saved by God through the gospel. Think about it. Who in your life is like, well, I don't, I don't know if God could save them. I don't know what's going on with that. But just think of God's grace to you and his perfect patience to you. God can save anyone. We want to be encouraged in that way. And Paul also, he freely shared the evidences of God's grace, where he had seen God at work in the lives of those around him. He's a man that through the truths of the gospel, through gospel joy, he strengthened others. He strengthened others by helping them to see that God is at work in their lives. That God's at work 
in their lives, and that God is up to something good in and for and through them. Because God is making them more and more into the image of Christ Jesus. Isn't that the type of church we want to be? We want to be encouraged. We want to be strong in gospel truths. We want to have faith for the salvation of others. We want to be on the lookout for the evidences of grace that's evident among all of us. Because God is at work, and God is doing things good. And we want to see, and we want to recognize, and we want to point out to everyone and strengthen each other with the evidences of grace that we see in each other's lives. So as we're humble and as we're aware of our own sin, we can also be on the lookout for the fruit of the gospel in everyone else and encourage each other about what we're seeing in them. All right, last up, joy. Joy. After considering all these truths while writing this passage, it is just impossible for God not to translate the theological to the doxological. To transition from head acknowledged facts to heart overflowing, joyful praise. He ends this passage with a glorious doxology, an explosion of worshipful joy. And so this is where we're going to leave today. And what we desire for our church to exemplify every day. Just imagine if the song of our hearts, every Sunday, every Monday, every Tuesday, and every day, were just to the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Paul, in remembering these amazing, deep, gospel-centered truths, well, he can't help but well up with explosive, worshipful, doxological joy. Wouldn't it be glorious if we, in our deepening understanding and appreciation for the gospel, also felt and experienced and worshiped the Lord with such joy? Imagine a church filled with people increasingly filled with joy. Again, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. So in conclusion, a gospel-centered culture, gratitude, humility, generosity, servanthood, godliness, encouragement, and joy, these are characteristics that are being displayed here at Providence and that we desire to see displayed more and more here at Providence. Not just that we'll be a pleasant people to be around or so that guests will be glad to be here, but surely, because isn't this what God is worthy of. Isn't this what God is worthy of? Surely Paul was transformed by the gospel. Well, God is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Holy Spirit is still at work, and the gospel has not changed. Christ died for our sins. Therefore, we can freely confess where we are not living these values, we can receive God's forgiveness for that. And we can ask to be just as grateful, just as humble, just as generous, servant-hearted, godly, encouraged, and joyful as Paul was. All for the glory of the Lord and the good of others. And isn't that a prayer that God would honor? Because of Jesus and his sacrifice, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be a people that display the characteristics of those who know 
and love the gospel and live its implications. We can be a gospel-centered church because the truths of the gospel are true for us. For the glory of the one who loved us and gave himself for us, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now for communion today, let's return to the core of the gospel. Let's remember the core of the gospel. The place where Jesus paid the price so we could all know and feel and exemplify gospel truths. The cross. Jesus is truly the king of ages. He is truly the second person of the Trinity. He is truly the son of God. Yet, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, for all of his glory and goodness and moral perfection, he took all of our sin upon himself. He took it all on himself, on the cross. All of our ingratitude, all of our pride, all of our stinginess, our selfishness, our worldliness, our hopelessness, our despondency, he took it on himself. He took it all on himself. And he faced the wrath of God on the cross with all that sin on him so that we could be forgiven. So we could be counted as righteous. So we could be adopted into God's families as sons and daughters. And so we could bear fruit for the gospel and exemplify the traits produced by the gospel. So our church could display a gospel-centered culture for the glory of the Lord and to a world that is so antithetical to this, yet so desperately needs to see it. Oh, how good, how merciful, how gracious, how glorious is the Savior's love for us. So this morning, let us come to the table, having thought deeply about the gospel, and particularly the cross, and let us be grateful, humble, generous, servant-hearted, godly, encouraged, and joyful people. Because the truths of the gospel are transforming us. And ultimately because that, as we said before, that is what the Lord is worthy of. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. As the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us now come and proclaim the Lord's death together. A death that has bought us and brought us acceptance with God. And freedom to live lives together in gospel-saturated unity. Lives worthy of his great name. Let us come. Mm -hmm.